Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 through 33. We're going to go all the way to the end of the chapter. It says in verse 25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify her and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul is expanding on the theme, if you will, in verse 21 of submitting to one another. It includes Wives and husbands and children. Wives are to love their husbands as expressions of surrender. And now husbands are to love their wives as an example of sacrifice in verse 25. Separation in verse 26 at the beginning. Service at the end of verse 26. Satisfaction in verses 28 through 33. And so in this passage, Paul instructs husbands to love their wives with a sacrificial love in verse 25. A sanctifying love in verses 26 and 27. A satisfying love in verses 28 through 33. And so the sacrificial love begins in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Husbands are told to love their wives and then gives them the measure or the standard. And remember, we've already learned what the Bible means when it uses the term love. As hard and as difficult as this is, it's not talking about emotion so much as it's talking about a willingness inside of your heart to do what's in the best interest of the person that you love. And so it's important that you keep that definition in mind. Love isn't a feeling that you feel in, in your heart. It's not butterflies in your stomach. It's a commitment to do what's right to the person that you love. And so when husbands are told to love their wives, and then the standard or the measure is given, as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, it prompts the question, how can I make my marriage work? Well, again, thank God that our primary source of information isn't our feeling and it isn't our imagination. You can imagine that a pastor's number one job, if you will, um, apart from teaching the Bible, 
when it comes to providing encouragement and comfort to the church, it's to, again, encourage people in their marriages. And it's probably the number one issue that I have to deal with. But again, the source of information doesn't come from my feelings or your imagination. The source of information comes from the word of God. Um, a woman went to a marriage counselor. He asked her, what's the problem? She said, it all began when he wanted to be included in the wedding pictures. Ouch. You can tell that you've got your work cut out with you when that's the first words out of their mouth. One man said, my wife is an angel. She's always up in the air. She's usually harping about something and she complains about the one outfit that I gave her to wear. In rural Japan, a man's wife is chosen for him by his parents. And he doesn't necessarily know who she is until after the marriage. Though the custom is completely different in America, the end result is often the same. He doesn't know who she is until after the marriage. So the words in this passage are taken at face value, and they should generate a certain measure of shock. When Paul says, husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, Men are given a measure and a standard and an example and a model. And certainly there are many aspects to Christ's love. But Paul gives not a list of ingredients, but one essential ingredient. And the essential ingredient is sacrificial service. Jesus gave himself for her. I think most men would like to think that they would die for their wives. I heard one wife say, you know, you always say that, but then you never do. <laughs> William Tanner did. He and his wife, Mary, were crossing a railroad track many years ago when Mary's foot slipped and got wedged between the rail and the wooden crosswalk. Desperately, she tried to get loose as the train approached from around the curb and her husband desperately attempted to free her. And as the train came closer and the brakes started screeching, Mary realized that she wasn't going to be able to get free and the train wasn't going to stop and she screamed, leave me, Bill, get out of here. And his efforts to free her were, were useless and he arose and he quickly put his arms around her to protect her as much as possible and while the bystanders shuddered in horror, the train thundered over them and it was reported that just before the train hit him, they could hear the brave man say, I'm not going to leave you, Mary. More men, most men, will never be placed in that situation. But all men are called upon in their heart and in their life to selflessness, 
to set aside petty self-centered demands and begin to live sacrificially for their wife. This is exactly what Jesus did. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, Paul's writing about this says, and being found, that is Jesus, in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross. So Jesus' death isn't just simply dying, but it's a particular kind of, of death. It's a gruesome and, 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 and painful death. Chuck Swindoll said, as Christ's love did, so the husband's love will move him to surrender his preferences and release having his own way in order to meet his wife's needs. Maybe this means simply turning off the television and listening to what your wife is saying. Or maybe it entails something bigger, like staying in one town instead of moving around so much. Or giving your wife a chance to put down roots so that she can grow without fear. Selflessness is going to take many forms. It's no wonder Jesus adopts the Old Testament metaphor of the bridegroom. In the Old Testament, Jehovah is pictured as the bridegroom of Israel. Jesus leaves heaven's glory in John 17, 5. But men find it hard to leave their little patch of he heaven. I know, I'm a guy. It's hard when your life is consumed with the golf course or the coin shop or fishing or camping or biking or racing or you can fill in whatever blank. Different guys have different happy places where they go to. Their little tiny piece of heaven. Jesus made, makes himself of no reputation in Philippians chapter 2 verse 7. But men are constantly wondering how wives make them look. And this is interesting to me, and it gives a, a certain insight into the phenomenon of trophy wives, where guys will pick a woman not so much about who she is, but about how this person looks in relationship to others. Jesus voluntarily lays aside his prerogatives as deity, omnipresence, omniscience, omnipotence. He's made in the likeness of a human being. He submits himself to authority, 1 Peter 2.21. He becomes obedient to death, a particularly painful kind of death. And so it becomes a model and a picture of selflessness. And the reason why I think it becomes a picture of selflessness is because guys are by and large Selfish. Oh, guys, don't look so shocked. And ladies, thank you for not shouting amen at the top of your lungs. Do you think you would be willing to throw yourself in front of a speeding train that's threatening your wife? Karen Long wrote a book entitled, If You Don't Die to Self, I May Have to Kill You. How'd you like to be her husband? I got the book just because the title was so cool. Warren Wearsby writes, to deny self does not mean you deny yourself things. It means 
Give yourself wholly to Christ. Share his shame and death. Again, Wiersbe writes, to take up a cross does not mean to carry burdens or have problems. I once met a lady who told me her asthma was the cross she had to bear. To take up the cross means to identify with Christ in his rejection and shame and suffering and death, unquote. That's why it's so difficult for guys to do the most simple things like go shopping with their wives. I got to tell you, wives, to go sh for your husband to go shopping with you is like pure torture. Over every shopping mall, they should post the words from Dante's Inferno, abandon all hope, you who enter here. <laughs> this is why it's so painful. But face it, guys, girls are going to shop. They're going to do what they do. And so the Bible elsewhere says, husbands, live with your wife and understand the way that she is. And in order for you to understand the way that she is, it isn't some sort of experiment that you do, but it requires you to pay close attention. He talks about the sacrificial love, but the sanctifying love, look what it says in verse 26, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. And you might look at that, that passage in that context and say, what does this have to do with husbands loving their wives? I want you to again follow Paul's way of thinking. Sacrifice produces sanctification. In what way? What did the sacrifice of Jesus accomplish? In part, it accomplishes the sanctifying of the church. Here, sanctifying means setting apart from sin so that you could be set apart to God. So sanctification here means taking something or someone, removing its sin, and then attaching the reality of what it means to have a right relationship with God. Men are not to use women, but love them and sacrifice for them. Note his argument so that they will be set apart from sin and be able to serve Christ. In other words, the husband's goal is to make life easier for the lady not to sin and to serve Christ. So Paul is going to use three important pictures to communicate this truth. This is very, very simple. You don't have to be a a theologian to figure it out. There's a Hebrew picture. There's a prophetic picture. There's a marital picture. In verse 26, there's the deliberate picture of the bridal ritual bath that he might sanctify and cleanse her. This is imagery that every Jew would have been familiar with. The Jewish maiden would rise at dawn on her wedding day. 
In our culture and society, we have different wedding cultures and different ceremony cultures. In that culture, in the Jewish culture, the, the, the day that a, a young maiden was going to be wed, she got up at dawn. It was the day that every girl dreams of. Her bridesmaids would join her in a nuptial bath. After she bathes, she puts on an embroidered wedding dress. And then she puts on her wedding sandals. She waits for her beloved breathless without spot or blemish. Now, I want you to understand the imagery. Spots are caused by defilement on the outside. Wrinkles are caused by decay on the inside. Again, I've been telling you I'm reading about the biography of Jonathan Edwards. And Jonathan Edwards says, when you go north of 58, you are advanced in years, according to the Puritans. When you get older... The collagen in your face and in your body begins to tear down and wrinkles are formed. The church is far from perfect. It has spots and wrinkles. The spots are caused by defilement in the world. And when the church becomes defiled with the world, it requires cleansing. The church needs washing. The Bible, the word of God is the detergent. The, the word of God and the will of God and the promises of God are the cleansing agent. James talks about this in James chapter 1, verse 27, when he says, keep yourself unspotted from the world. Strictly speaking, the church should have no wrinkles. Wrinkles are evidence of old age caused by decay on the inside. As the church is nourished by the word of God, it causes the wrinkles to disappear. The word of God, how can I say this? The word of God is like a heavenly moisturizer. It's like oil of Olay that smooths out the wrinkles. Like a beautiful bride, the church should be clean and youthful. And so in verse 27, it says that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she should be holy and without blemish. This is the prophetic picture. This prophetic picture, we're washed by the preaching of the gospel. We embrace the word of God. We receive this glorious baptism. We're given the spirit of God when we accept Christ as our savior. We we are baptized into the body of Christ through baptism. We receive this glorious baptism by the Spirit for power and for service. Again, the imagery, we're baptized in water, which represents complete washing. And, the, and when you are baptized in water, it becomes a type and a picture of dying to self and then coming back to a new life. And so in this picture, Paul is painting a picture of the return of Jesus where a pure and clean bride is presented to Jesus. The official wedding is ready to begin. The ceremony and the sealing of God's romance for the ages can take place. And so, again, the Hebrew picture and the prophetic metaphor, he's tying these images 
to the point of the relationship that Jesus has with the church and that the husband has with his wife. And so the metaphor abruptly changes to the metaphor of marriage. The bride takes on the characteristics of the groom. The church becomes like Christ. Her salvation and sanctification are the work of Jesus. And yet a prominent part of her loving growth comes from her husband's example. And that's the point that Paul is trying to make. That the husband's example, now think about this, do the math and just connect the dots. The husband's example makes it easier for her not to sin, makes it easier for her to serve, makes it easier for her to become more and more like Jesus. And so that's part of the point. He has this sacrificial and humble opportunity in developing her beauty. I want you to connect the dots here. The picture that Paul is painting is that Jesus allows the church. It is Jesus who makes the church without spot and wrinkle. Husband. It's the husband who gets to look at his wife and say, after 30 years of marriage, or 40 years of marriage, or 50 years of marriage, to see that same beautiful bride that he married so long ago. Think about this. You are possessed by the Spirit of God, and you possess the tools to cooperate with God in the perfection of your wife. This is the argument that Paul is making. Just like Jesus is able to make the church without spot and wrinkle, the husband is able to, with his wife, help her to not have spot or wrinkle. Husbands are to so love their wives, think about this, so that they can be set apart for God's purposes. And then it's a satisfying love. Look at verse 28. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Don't twist this scripture to emphasize self-love. This isn't a husband's way of saying, well, sweetie, I can't really love you unless I love myself. I hate to tell you this, but you couldn't misread the scripture any worse than that. Remember, men are fallen by nature. Again, ladies, thank you for not shouting amen at that point. Because they're selfish and self-centered, here's Paul's argument. Men do not struggle with selflessness. They struggle with selfishness. And because they struggle with selfishness, what Paul is basically saying is, this isn't the problem. You love yourself. You care for yourself. Paul understands human nature. Men love their wives 
when they love their wives, they love themselves. And when you're being kind to her, you're being kind to yourself. And when you're being unkind to her, you're being unkind to yourself. Whatever you do to her, by definition, according to Paul, you're doing to yourself. So husbands, if you call your wife some ugly name, you're diminishing yourself. Do you call her stupid? Then you're questioning her judgment. Remember, she uses that same judgment when she married you. It reminds me of a story where this wife, you know, she's a little bit scatterbrained. She locks her her keys in the car and her husband strangely says to her, I just don't get it. What? How could someone so beautiful be so stupid? And she said, I think God made me beautiful so that you would be attracted to me. And God made me stupid so I would be attracted to you. (laughs) That's a gracious wife. When Paul says, for no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. Human beings have a God-given impulse towards self-preservation. We feed our body. We clothe our bodies. Sometimes we paint or patch or powder our bodies. You know, people who say they struggle with self-esteem, it really isn't necessarily true. If you're standing in, in front of a mirror and you go, does this mirror make me look fat? And if you really hated yourself, you'd say, good for you, good for you, you deserve to be fat. No, people don't do that. People care about how they look. Human beings protect themselves when they're threatened. They avoid pain. They seek pleasure. How we care for ourselves doesn't even begin to describe how Jesus cares for us. Will you get up in the morning? Will you feed yourself? Will you do the most basic and simple things to keep yourself alive? Again, here's the contrast. The contrast is selfish people do selfish things just to be able to function, but Jesus is going to do Go above and beyond. The key words are nourish and cherish. These two words continue Paul's point of loving care that husbands demonstrate towards wives. The first word, nourish, is is an interesting word. It's ektropho. It's found here and in chapter 6, verse 4, when it says, And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition. It's translated admonition there. And, And so the word... Paul's using the term to describe the manner in which children are to be raised. One Greek scholar, Thayer, says the term means to nourish up to maturity. The, The image that I want you to think about is imagine you have your child or your grandchild. Does Seriously, did your children or your grandchildren have to beg you to give them food? I mean, it's one thing if you don't have food, 
But what mother in her right mind isn't going to feed her family? And so the image here is that just like caring parents want to provide appropriate nourishment to bring their child up to maturation, that's the idea. Cherish is the verb thalpo. It literally means to keep warm. So here it means to cherish or to comfort. It means to keep warm in the same sense. Imagine you see a child shivering from the cold and you take a blanket or a coat and you wrap them up and you bundle them. You see a person freezing. And so you provide the warmth and the comfort that is necessary. Again, Thayer writes like the Latin foveo, to cherish with tender love to foster with tender love. It, the word only appears here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7. But it reminds me of that great song from the 60s. Remember, cherish is the word I use to describe all the feelings that I have hiding here for you inside. With just the right amount of letters and just the right sound. Okay, I'll stop. <laughs> but it's supposed to create this image of love cherish, comfort. And, and so Paul, again, gives the reason in verse 30, for we are members of his body, of his flesh and of his bones. Jesus not only saves us from our sin, he not only gives us eternal life. Again, pause for just a minute and really think about this. Does Jesus save us? Yes. Does Jesus forgive us? Yes. And then he incorporates us into his own self. Again, Paul uses the metaphor of a body. We become the mystical body of Christ. Paul is stringing together two concepts. Christ's body and Christ's bride. The way that I would think about this is he's basically saying Christ's body and Christ's bride are singular and indivisible. They are united. Husbands are to love their wives sacrificially. Husbands are to love their wives like their own body because Jesus loves us and we are his own body. In a way that is mysterious and wonderful, we are in Christ in a way that is permanent and indivisible. And he gives the biblical support for his argument in verse 31 when he's quoting Genesis chapter 2 verse 24. For this reason a man will leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become echad, one flesh. Jesus quotes the same verse in Matthew chapter 19 verse 5. And again in Mark chapter 10, verse 7, that expression, and be joined, literally in the Hebrew language means to be glued together. The image is like taking a piece of paper and another piece of paper and then gluing them together. 
You can't separate the pages without partially or completely destroying both pages. And that's why, ladies and gentlemen, that's why marriage difficulties are so painful. They are so supernaturally painful. This is a statement that is both spiritually true and spiritually satisfying. In other words, it's like a two-edged sword where therefore a man will leave his mother and father and cleave to the woman and the two shall become one. That when you experience that kind of unity and it is healthy and appropriate, then it has all of the elements that I talked about earlier when I prayed that a healthy marriage has trust and respect and affection. If you're going to have a marriage pie and you go, what, what ingredients am I going to put in my marriage pie? You're going to have to put a generous amount of trust in there. You're going to have to put a generous amount of respect in there. You're going to have to put a generous amount of affection in there. And it's possible for a relationship to stumble along without one of them. Perhaps without two of them. But once three of them are gone, it's gone. And here's what I would appeal to you. If you've ever had a failed relationship, then you know exactly what I'm talking about. A man's love nourishes his wife, just as Christ's love nourishes the church. Jesus cherishes the church, and the husband is to cherish his wife. Have you ever heard anyone ever say, I'm starving for love. That's what it's talking about. It, it, that's when a person says, I'm starving for love. It means that there's a conspicuous lack of nourishment and cherishing. So when Warren Wiersbe says this appropriately, he says, quote, there should be no starvation for love in a Christian home, for the husband and wife should so love each other that their physical and emotional and spiritual needs are met. If both are submitted to the Lord and to each other, they will be so satisfied that they won't be tempted to look anywhere else for fulfillment, unquote. And in verse 32, when he says, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Here's what the text doesn't mean, and it's not saying. Paul isn't saying, this is all so mysterious, and who could figure it out, and let's just, hey, let's move on to the next subject. That's actually not what's being said here. He doesn't mean, hey, this is all so mysterious, let's just forget about it. Rather, the implication is this truth is so important that it's tremendous. In other words, as Paul is outlining the wife's submission and the husband's love, he's trying to paint a picture 
of the model that if followed is going to result in the successful union and happiness in the marriage. The mystery is the purpose which was hidden in God, but's now revealed in us, namely as a wife is to her husband, so is Christ to the church. He actually is inviting you to consider all of the implications of that incredible analogy in the book, Intimate Allies, Dan Allender and Tremper Longman III capture the concept. They write, quote, marriage is not merely a convenience to overcome loneliness or an expedient arrangement to propagate the race. First and foremost, marriage is a mirror of the divine human relationship. Every marriage is meant to represent God, his perfect relationship with himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as well as his relationship with his people. They write, we can reveal God by the way we love our spouses. Think about that for just a second, because Paul's argument all along for the wife is if you'll submit to your husband it's going to provide the most powerful element for him to change and if husbands love their wives it will provide the most powerful element for their sanctification they're being set apart from sin and being set aside to serve the Lord it seems so sad to me, that in our culture, in our society, the Supreme Court has ruled that a man can be married to a man and a woman can be married to a woman. Not only is it not biblical and not scriptural, but again, I, I want you to see, it isn't that we hate people or, or we're denying them love. I want you to understand the greater greater responsibility and application. God's mechanism of marriage was meant to reveal something about himself to us. It was given for the comfort and the convenience of humanity. Marriage with all of its pitfalls, with all of its faults, with all of its difficulties. It was meant to reflect the Lord Jesus and his church. In marriage, humanity experiences this amazing restoration to wholeness. Yet marriage itself, in the most beautiful way and in the most mysterious way, was meant to reveal Christ to a watching world. And it is supposed to, in its very essence, do that. The wife for the husband, the husband for the wife, and then the, the husband and wife for the children. It should tell you something about the nature of God. And this is why when it's perverted and distorted and misrepresented, it becomes such a difficulty. 
In verse 33, he says, nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. I want to remind you of something. Beginning in verse 22, Paul will use that term, own. Look again in verse 33. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife. Not your neighbor's wife. Not, not the person who lives down the street. Not the person you met on the internet. As a matter of fact, he's going to use this six times. Wives, submit to your own husbands, verse 28. Husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies, verse 29. No one ever hated his own flesh, verse 33. Let each one of you in particular love his own wife. The emphasis throughout the passage is on monogamy and exclusivity. Ladies, Paul then has an admonition inserted here. She that, that see that she respects her wife. Or she, she, see that she respects her husband. The word respect is very interesting. Remember that old song? R-E-S-P-E-C-T, tell me what it means to me. Yeah, you remember the song. In the Greek language, it's P-H. O-B-E-T-A-I. Phobitei. You know that word. We get the word phobia from it. She respect her husband. This word, it means fear. It, it has the idea, it's often translated in the New Testament, to fear God. And so it doesn't mean the constant dread of punishment. Fear has this broad meaning. It can mean respect. It can mean obedience. It can mean reverence. It can mean adoration, depending on the context. But in this long spectrum of meaning, the love that Paul has in mind for husbands is the same love that Jesus exercises in the New Testament Gospels. It's a love that serves and sacrifices. It's the kind of service and sacrifice that leads the wife to become all that she was meant to be in Christ so that she is able to respect her husband. Now, this is interesting to me because the emphasis in the New Testament seems to be that husbands are to love their wife and that wives are to respect their husbands. It's interesting because of the nature of what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. Imagine, ladies, if your husband said to you, I love you, but the thought of touching you gives me the creeps. See, you laugh because you go, well, wait a minute. Wait, wait, time out. How can you love someone, but touching them gives you the creeps? One of two things, you're going to come to the conclusion. Either you don't understand what love means, or you don't love me. Now, husbands, imagine a wife says to the husband, I love you, but I don't respect you. It's as if, 
it's just like if, if the husband says to the wife, I love you, but I don't want to touch you under any circumstance. It's a disconnect that is so profound that both of those concepts can't exist in the same heart at the same time. Because again, this is the way that you, that love is made manifest. Now, again, I want you to think this through. Love is invisible and intangible. You can't touch it, taste it, put it in a box and unwrap it. Love becomes real as it manifests itself in the way that you actually act towards one another. And I suspect that that's why Paul uses this term. Again, look carefully and consider what the passage is saying. Paul's emphasis is not, listen carefully, Paul's emphasis is not the husband's authority over his wife, but the sacrifice and service that he extends to the wife. In our mind, authority typically conjures up images of power, control, dominion, maybe even oppression. If someone has modeled to you that a godly husband is a domineering tyrant who makes all the decisions, who fails miserably to model sacrifice and service, who leaves his spouse feeling empty and unfulfilled, then you have misunderstood this passage. A man who issues commands, expects mindless obedience, who inhibits and suppresses his wife, who prevents her from growing into a godly woman for Jesus, who links success to him and not to her, has misunderstood everything that Paul has said in the passage. Men, your headship is to initiate and lead your Power is the power to woo and to win by love. Headship should never be confused with dictatorship. You're to care, not crush. You're to serve, not smother. You're to facilitate, not frustrate your wife. You're to provoke and promote her spiritual growth and not destroy the work of God in her heart. And you know what the standard is? Do you know what the real model is? It's the cross of Calvary. Godly marriage books should be located in the atonement section in your local bookstore or your online provider. You're to forgive and not hold grudges. You're to extend compassion rather than berate and shame. You're to accept and value your wife for who she is rather than demand the unrealistic standard of perfection that you've created in your mind. Let me just be blunt. Do you have the same standard for yourself? Is that what you expect from yourself? perfection. You're to honor your wife as a precious gift from God. And let me just be blunt. If you will be all that you can be in Christ, she'll respect you.
Billy Graham said, you have an ego, a consciousness of being an individual. But that doesn't mean you're to worship yourself or to think constantly about yourself or to live entirely for yourself. If you live in a marriage where you deny yourself nothing, insist on everything, compromise nothing, then you're going to have a terrible marriage, unquote. Pray with your wife and then pray for your wife. Sacrificial love does that. The Bible says that Jesus ever lives and intercedes for you at the right hand of the Father in heaven. According to the Bible, Jesus dies on the cross and he rises from the dead and he ascends into heaven, according to the Bible, where he ever lives to intercede for you. Pay attention to your wife. Again, live with her. And understand the way that she is. Years ago in the Midwest, the story was told of a farmer and his wife who were lying in bed during a terrible storm when suddenly a funnel tornado, t tornado came out of the sky. It lifted the roof right off of the house and their bed was swept away and the wife began to cry and the farmer called out to her and says, this is no time to cry. But she, she called back and she says, no, no, I'm crying because I'm so happy. This is the first time that we've been out together for 20 years. <laughs> the point? Take her out a little bit more. Take her out every once in a while. I read an amazing story that took place during the time of the Crusades. A knight was taken captive by the great emperor Saladin, and you may not know about him, but he lived in the 15th century, and he built the great walls that still surround Jerusalem. And I love to tell this story when, when I go to Israel. He took a knight captive, and the knight begged for his life, not because he was a coward or unworthy of death, he claimed a wife in England who loved him dearly and who loved him more than life itself. He dared not die because the grief would kill his beloved wife. And the king stated, I don't think so. I am going to kill you. And she'll get over it rather quickly. But then a cruel thought entered into his mind. He offered to set the man free if the lady in question would send her right hand as a token of her love for his captive. When word was sent to the lady in England, she immediately severed her right hand and sent it to the Emperor Saladin. Be sacrificial in your love. Die to yourself. Make sure your love is a purifying love, a sacrificial love, a praying love, an interceding love, an attentive love that gives time and care. And what would happen if we obeyed God's instructions for husbands and wives? Separation would cease. Strife would cease. Divorce would cease to exist. Our homes would become a 
tiny taste of heaven before heaven itself. And that's why you have to understand why Paul is writing these words. Remember the theme of the book, in the heavens. Paul understands something. In order to have a pure and happy church, you've got to have a pure and happy family. And it's okay, it's okay to have a tiny taste of heaven before you get there. So let's pray again. Heavenly Father, we do pray for our families. We pray for husbands. We pray for wives. And even as we pray for husbands and wives, we admit that maybe we haven't done everything that the Bible asks us to do. Maybe our love has been less than pure, less than sacrificial, less than selfless. And Lord, rather than use it as an excuse, Lord, we pray that you would reveal to our hearts what needs to change inside of our heart so that we could do what you want us to do. So we could be the kind of wives who become the most basic ingredient in, in their husband's change so that we can become husbands who facilitate their wives' godliness, separation, growth, and health, so that we can become families, Lord, that reflect your love and your grace and your mercy. And again, Lord, we understand that we don't do things perfectly or consistently. But Lord, we pray that, again, you would give us this opportunity to think differently and act differently and be different for our wives, for our husbands, for our children. And again, Father, we pray that we would be gracious and kind. Lord, we pray that we would remember the, the last passage in chapter 4, that we would be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven us. Stir our hearts, Lord, in Jesus' name.